0: And we're back with another On Coaching podcast with Magnus and Marcus. I am Steve Magnus, the coach at the University of Houston, author of The Passion Paradox, joined by my good friend, colleague, John Marcus, the director of High Performance West. John, we're back. You know what it is, to give the people what they want. That's why we're back.
1: Yes. People have been wanting stuff. They've been asking. And we're here. We're here to deliver the
0: goods. To talk about coaching because that's what we love to talk about. Now, before we dive into this week's topic, we have a great sponsor Um, the Missouri High School Track and Field Cross Country Coaches Association Clinic, held in Columbia, Missouri on December 12th, 13th, and 14th at the Holiday Inn Executive Center. Uh, We'll put up a link in the show notes. Why should you go to this clinic? Well, I've been there and spoke before. Fabulous clinic, great place, but that doesn't matter. I'm going to give you a couple names here and, and then you're going to sign up for this because you're like, this is $100. I am driving to Missouri because that's what I would do. Listen yep. to these names. Bern Gambetta. Okay. Jim Radcliffe. Goat. Goat. Vince Anderson. Goat. Harry Mara. Goat. A couple guys named John and Steve. Nick Washed Garcia. <laughs> and then some fabulous strength coaches, high school coaches uh, who have won state champs. All that good stuff. But goodness gracious. I i mean, you're talking Vern, Jimmy Ragliff, Ben Anderson. I'd pay $100 Mar- just
1: to listen to one of them. <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> like, <laughs> I'd, I'd pay $100 to take those guys out to dinner. Whatever yes. it is. Yes, hands you, down. You know, like... Ooh, I'm going to be in the audience just, just listening, forget actually talking. I'm just going to move <laughs> over and be like, I don't deserve to be here because these guys, these guys drop way more knowledge than John or I will. That might not be yes, the best. If you
1: live, if you live in the Midwest, like these collectively they have, I, I just ballparked over 200 years of coaching experience between the four of them, you know, collectively like and at a high national world class Olympic championship level, all of them, and a multidisciplinary approach, all of them. Like, you know, just alone, Vern, Jimmy, uh, Vince, and Harry are worth the $100. So go and sign up. Uh, you know, if you live in the Midwest, even if you live on the West Coast, this is, a, and they're all friends too, especially uh, Vern, Jimmy, and Harry. Have spent a lot of time together, so you're going to see something that you don't normally see. Yeah, I, I, mean, I I'm you glad see. we got the the chance to speak there, so we can get there. You yeah. know, yeah, uh, we're like, the, anyways.
0: we're the undercard people who shouldn't be on the list, but are just thankful to be at the event. Um, yes. and, and you know, that's yeah, I, I we could go on this all day, but just l- go,
1: just sign up and go. Just go. Best thing you'll do: December twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth. I guarantee
0: it. I promise you, you'll get with. If you're not satisfied, come to me, and I'll uh, I'll refund you because you're going to be satisfied. Goes,
1: that, <laughs> wow! That, yeah, all right, Steve. Big, Steve's gotten big checks. That, I love it. That
0: that's how confident I am in these guys because I've sat there and listened to. Uh, I haven't listened to Harry in person, but Vince, Jimmy, and Vern, okay. and yeah. and Harry, no doubt, is awesome based on what he's done with Ashton and uh Brian and just it's gonna be awesome. So sign up, get there, it'll be awesome. Alright. So now that we've uh gone through the list of legends (laughs) in track and field we're gonna do our
1: our, our part to sprinkle something (laughs) into the pot. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Uh, What are we gonna be talking about today? We're gonna call it models on how to get fast. Mm. Now The great thing about training is that we can have all these different models for how to improve. And when we sit there and we say, hey, have you done Lydiard or Daniels or, you know, Dan Paths stuff or whatever, what we're actually saying is, are we utilizing the same models that they used or they (coughs) described, right? And... I think this is worth considering because we can look at models from a a vast different uh, arrays in terms of we can look at it from a physiological side, from a like numbers side, from a biomechanical Mm -hmm. side or physics side. And it just how we how we change that worldview alters how we uh, judge and uh, see workouts.
1: It's the famous quote, right? To understand is to know what to do. And based on your level of understanding or depth or the um, degrees of understanding you have or don't have, then that shapes what you also do and don't do. And that's the difficult part, right? We constantly don't know what we don't know. And so we're all ignorant to a certain degree, every single person. I mean, no one woke up a genius, but through study and practice and lots of it continuous and stepping outside your comfort zone and considering things that might conflict with your current worldview, that might actually be something that's a little bit more evolved of a worldview, that's the process of getting better. But if you don't understand, then you don't have the capacity to know what to do. And that's why Steve and I, ourselves, and also um, STEAM – a continuous learning approach where you're constantly striving to upgrade your knowledge day in and day out. Because without it, you're just kind of stuck.
0: Yeah, exactly. So what what we're gonna do today, and I think we're gonna start off by one model that is at we'll say the uh the extreme end of one side, right? Mm-hmm. And that is one model by our past coach or Famous pass coach Ernst Van Aken, who was a coach in the uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, most notably of Harold Norpoth, who was a very, very good runner, um, especially in the 60s and 70s. And he wrote um, a book called The Van Aken Method, and he mm. was widely known for what he called the pure endurance method, right? So we're going to talk about this because this is the extreme side of the endurance development. A modern incarnation of this might be something um, something similar to the Mathitone method by Phil Mathitone, which has kind of taken off in some triathlon areas. Where I'm going to sum up his uh, training with a couple quotes, very very simply: run daily, run slowly. Run many miles, many times your racing distance if you are a track runner, okay? And then later on, he said um, to that training should be playful and that well, continuous rep, repetition of near-maximal training becomes dangerous because of psychic stress. Man, we got a car in the background going crazy. Um <laughs> We're all good now. Um, Sorry about that. That's the real talk on podcast. So, anyways. So, what we have is someone, Van Aken, someone who, very long, slow distance stuff, very easy, put on a lot of miles, don't do a ton of fast stuff or maximal effort stuff. Um, So, the inclination is, the idea is, okay, like, this must mean run really slow, long slow distance to get fast, right? And mm. there, that's the model he came from. But what is left out often when we think of models like Van Aken's or what, uh, you know, it evolved to, or the modern incarnation, is that he advised to do fifty-meter sprints. Not all the time, but they were to be done as sharpeners occasionally. Mm-hmm. And he advised to do small, what I'll call spices of work um, during all periods of time. Something like if you were training uh, for mile to 5K, something like 3 by 500 at mile race pace with as much rest as you want. Maybe later for the 5K, three by. three. 1k at 5k race pace or 3k race pace which is much with as much rest as you want um so what you have what you have here in this model is this idea that oh it's pure endurance pure endurance pure endurance this is what gets us better but what's often forgotten are those spices of fast work and then also the 50 meter sprints that he'd have his athletes doing now are those the key determinants no not necessarily but uh, what generally happens on whatever model we take and the same thing happens with lydiard because we forget the hill phase of the model um, oh, and you also forget the speed phase, phase of, of the model. Yes. <laughs> so what w- what happens is models are great because they give us an idea of, of, of cutting out the BS and keeping things simple so that they're usable, right? But w- what we forget is we take some of these, when we simplify, 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 we lose some of these things that might have had value, which allowed the athletes to run at the level that, um, are these coaches athletes ran at um, because we might say oh those aren't aren't as important you know or we might just say oh this is pure endurance this is what this is what it is or oh 100 miles a week like let's hit this, well, this, we, we, this we tend is to what take made.
1: the path of least resistance
0: right like it's a
1: great narrative to say hey just jog and trot along 100 miles a week in the forest with your mates and you'll get magically faster and i'm not I'd never have negated or said that won't happen. You will see improvement. But in the world of performance, in the world of sport, we're not just looking for any old improvement. We're looking for a pretty high rate of return on our investment. And our investments are time and energy and effort and practice, right? And I think I'd be remiss if we didn't remember that Lydiard, yes, you know, promoted the six straight months, six months of what he called marathon training – right, to create this aerobic threshold or base, if you want to call it that. Six months. I know no one in the modern era who is doing six months of 100 mile weeks before they start to transition to the specificity of track season. And then he talked about, you won't lose speed because you have this base, but you have to do the speed work. And here is, you know, I opened up Arthur Lear's running training schedule, second edition from 1970, put out by Track and Field News. And this is the third week of the schedule for the 5,000-meter runners, Monday is two miles at half effort. Now, half effort, he describes as if your um, 3K race pace is 8.20, a half effort would be running 3K at 8.50, okay? <laughs> that, 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 I'm reading it verbatim. That's what he says. So do that. Then Tuesday, the following day, do ten by two hundred or two twenty yards, and he says if your full out sprints of a two twenty yards is say for most distance runners might be twenty five seconds, then a half is going to be twenty nine seconds. So now do twenty times two twenty at twenty nine seconds. Okay, then sprint training the when the next is sprint training. So sprint training, and then also race at the end of the sprint training and hundred and two twenty yard dashes race that in practice for fun that's a sprint training day thursday is 6 miles and it's basically sprint training or sprint 100 yards and run uh 300 meters right so or 400 yards so it's basically 6 miles worth of uh fartlek on the track going 100 yards sprint 300 easy then again friday is sprint training again that's Friday in the same same week here, and then we're going on to Saturday of twenty times a quarter at what at a quarter speed. And if your all out quarter is say fifty six for, for for men at the time, your quarter speed is going to be sixty sixes. Okay, so twenty times four hundred at sixty sixes, and then Sunday two hour steady run, steady being you know something around six minute pace or better. That's the week, guys and gals. Anyone would look at that today and go, but you can't do all those hard quality efforts back to back, back to back. Like people's brains would explode. This is what Lydiard's booklet told people to do. This is what he said will work. This is why Peter Snell. This is why Murray. This is why those guys ran so freaking fast. If you're going to run six days a week in a row, basically sprint training, mile repeats, 3K 5K work and then have a steady run, but you can handle that dosage, you can handle that intensity, and you can handle that density and that volume, and that's what the whole purpose of building that robust aerobic capacity was for. Not to argue about how many, you know, joules or millimoles, you know, per liter someone's taking in as they're running. It's can you run really fast? And remind you, this the schedule which I pulled out of was ten weeks of this. Ten straight weeks of this relentless fast stuff relative, and the word is fast. And I I say anything faster than marathon pace is fast every single day for ten weeks. (laughs) That's Lydiard. That's Lydiard. So if you say you're a Lydiard guy or a Lydiard coach or a Lydiard woman – this is what you mean, then. You mean, yeah, we do our we do our, our long aerobic base phase for six months with uninterrupted training, and we just go for a hundred mile weeks, and then we go speed or quality basically every single day except Sunday, where we do a steady tempo for two hours, and we do that for ten straight weeks. <laughs> That's Lydier. I, I mean, if you want it, I, I I'll I'll take a picture and I'll I'll give it to Steve to put in the show notes. But it's pretty amazing when you actually look at it and you dig down to it. But yet we detracted you know, in our modern understanding of Lydiard to be something completely different, right?
0: I'm just going to let that sink in for a second.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. 10 but straight but weeks of fast every single day. It, and it's... Ten it's straight it's, weeks, 70 yeah, days. It, it,
0: it, it's <laughs> seven true. I mean, days. I have, I have, I have, I don't know if I have the same book, but I have a couple of original, original Lydiards training schedules from the... From the late 60s early 70s and and that's what it that's what it says um, Yeah,
1: and you wonder why like oh yeah they set the world record at the 5k and the 15 that's a grueling grueling schedule for 10 straight weeks
0: yeah yeah it is <laughs> but all right so let's step back and think about this okay so for linear there we took away the six months of aerobic base as the key component to it, but we left out this other part, or modified this other part. And to be fair, in Lydiard's later books, which wasn't the stuff that Snell and those guys were doing, he modified it to maybe three days a week of, of intervals, three or four days, I forget right. exactly. Well,
1: because remember, it's, he had a problem, right? It's yeah. the modification of what worked, with a group, a cohort of really motivated champions who wanted to do well, who just were like all into it versus then he was trying to sell books. And when you sell books to the mass market audience, as you know, Steve, your message has to be apl- a- applicable. It has to be, complete. the reader has to be compliant. And now you have to guess where that reader is coming from and what's going to help them to actually get out the door. But still, three days of quality a week, That's a high demand as well. I mean, that's more than most. To where we sit today.
0: Yeah. Most, most, I would venture to guess that most college, university programs do two days of quality plus a long run.
1: Yeah. And they view, and rightfully so, the long run as a type of quality day, even though it's not necessarily a speed of movement quality. It's more of a.
0: But different type if you compare that to literate, let's say three or four days of workouts plus one long run, you're looking at four to five quote mm-hmm. unquote quality days um mm-hmm. which you know we're not trying to take away from lydiard or what we're doing now or anything. I think it's just like pointing out these uh these differences um not to say that one is better than uh, not, but I think that like in the trace of history as we create and modify these models a lot of times we take bits and pieces and then forget about um, the wholeness of it and i think if you sit there and you think okay well what's different between like Lydiard's approach and and nowadays well think about it he did six months essentially of 100 miles a week was the prescription yeah well when you follow that up with 10 weeks straight of you know five six days of intervals like Mm -hmm. i would venture to guess that you need it's probably six months of hundred mile weeks to to last to be strong enough yeah to, to last for 10 weeks of grinding intervals you know um so it's all we can't separate these things out and like assign causation to it we have to look at, like, the things as a whole is, like, this worked as a as a whole generally for these types of athletes. Um, if we, we split apart the model, it still might work if we pick and choose, but we have to make sure that we're understanding, like, why these processes were done, right? Right.
1: And I think what all the models share is intensity, is understanding that intensity is the driver. Intensity is the driver for really high and multifactorial global adaptations. And we have to remember, the body in running is a very complex adaptive system. A lot of people are like, it's not rocket science, it's not that hard. And yes, it really is. Running, the mechanic of running, is one of the most complex movements that we know and that we can do it's just the diff- the we get fooled a little bit because everyone has a rough sketch on how to generate and create locomotion and running and a lot of times people just settle on the rough sketch but if you had a rough sketch and you just winged it on how to ice skate you'd fall flat on your feet because you have to get to a level of competency to be able to ice skate without falling down and hitting yourself in the face on the ice what we need to understand is the biomechanical model of actually how the 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 body the limbs and everything generates and creates virtuous locomotion is a very real thing that does necessitate time and energy understanding and if you are in a setting where you have a sprint coach on your staff or if you're not you know a sprint coach like those people uh have spent uh, and added a great deal of understanding to the biomechanical models and vince anderson who will be at the clinic Uh, in Missouri in December, he's one of those people who gets it and gets it real good, Um, and one of the people who started to understand the need to do wickets and why, and why you see that coordination for any, any athlete, whether you are a distance runner, a basketball player, a football player, a sprinter, whatever, to be able to generate that linear speed and that linear coordination, very, very important stuff, right? But we sit here and go, oh, you just run how you run, and that's the way it is. And I saw, you know, people say that all the time, but it's a myth. It, you do run how you run, but it's not the way it is. There, you can always refine and make that more efficient through very complex, intense um, problems to be solved, which typically is going to be in the realm of sprinting and speed work. Because you can't generate a certain degree of speed, so to speak, if you your ability to coordinate and reposition your limbs, if your brain's ability to anticipate that is not up to snuff. And that just, again, like any practice, it takes time and effort and energy. It's like, you see the world-class pianist, right? Whose fingers move so fast, the naked eye can't even keep up with it. That she was not born like that. She spent hours getting and years getting to that competency, but now she can coordinate so quickly and create this music. That's so beautiful because of it. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't, you know, all understand what the commonality of intensity being the driver. And I will point to Vin Lana's training, which isn't out there, but you know, I've sat down and spoken at length with Vin several multi-hour sessions about his training. One thing that's very interesting when he was at Stanford and again at Oregon is he figured out intensity is the driver. And so day 1 of practice after the two week he give his guys and gals two weeks off after ncas day one first day of practice for cross country they were doing repeat 150s and the way he would do that it's kind of more of the um a, a building or crescendoing 150 or a wind sprint as they might call them where Your first phase of the 150, 50 meters is accelerating. Your middle 50 is at max velocity for where you are at that space and time. And then your last phase is a slow, but not, you know, I guess slow, I should say, um, is a slow rate of deceleration out of the the max velocity of the sprint, right? And so that's what they would do year-round two sessions of 150s the day before um, they would do workouts. So, They're going for their training run, as he would call it, and for Vin, training runs aired on the side of higher um, quality, so they'd be shorter in duration, say seven, eight miles, but they'd be at something like six-minute pace for us all-American guys. And then they come to the track, do five to eight times one fifties, depending. Call that the day. Go lift weights, and then the next day do a workout. It, one thing that strikes you when you look at Vin's training and his guidance is how low the global volume or mileage is, but how consistent there is exposure to quality. And I have uh, Jonathan Riley's winter uh, break workouts in my hands from 1999. And you look at it and you say, you go through a seven day cycle, and there is something of quality, whether it's these 150s weights or a workout. Essentially, six days out of the seven days, and you get, he gives like Lydiard, he gives one day without this, without a quality stimulus. Now, dosage matters, right? If I take two aspirins, that can be helpful. If I take a hundred aspirins, that can kill me. <laughs> so we also have to have, I'm remembering simultaneously holding into our heads, dosage of intensity matters, and so Vin's not having them do you know, fifty times one fifty, it's five or six. It's less than a minute maybe of running fast, but it's it's in there. It's in there two to three times a week. He's having them lift weights after these train runs and you know strides or these build up one fifties three days a week. And this is happening the day before workout that they're lifting weights. So it's not impacting necessarily from his worldview adversely in a negative way, lifting before workout the day before is not hurting his guys and gals you know, his results when he was coaching actively at the collegiate setting at Sanford, Oregon demonstrate otherwise.
0: So it's, it's interesting there because you set you step back and you look at programs like uh, Vince, maybe, or even like a Canova's. Um, and the, the thing that struck me on Canova, for example, when I started looking at some of his stuff and talking to him about some stuff, is there is always something in there, probably probably five, six days of the week, that um, was beyond just easy running, mm-hmm. right? And towards the tail end of my career, I experimented with some of this stuff too, is like, instead of just going out for a 10-mile a, a run, let's say, Canova would have, you know, in the middle of that run... Eight by thirty second pickups. You know? Oh
1: yeah. Ooh, beautiful.
0: Yes. Mm. And and you're just looking at like, well, from a workout standpoint, like, no, this isn't very strenuous uh physiologically, right? Um but it adds this component of rhythm, turnover, you know, um coordination. Ch- coordination. Muscle muscle recruitment. Gears, right. And mm-hmm. and I think there's something to that, and I'm guilty of it as as anybody as i don't i think in this discussion when you you when you bring up intensity the um the uh the trigger is to almost get defensive and start like saying but if we do intensity like that's hard and we need to drop volume and i think you need to just don't even bring up volumes yeah in this, this discussion, because, like, Nova's athletes were in a shitload of volume. Um, excuse, my, <laughs> yes, excuse my language, are, but they do. It's
1: impressive. Yeah. Um,
0: it, and It's impressive, and I'm not saying we need to go there, but the, the in my, I'll plug my book, Science of Running, I remember adding this section, and I didn't know what to call it, and it was a call, it, it, this is like classic Steve, if you actually know me, and it it was called something like normal runs with stuff <laughs> classic steve yes and <laughs> what, what what stuff was is it could be 30 second pickups it could be like what we called a run to the barn where the last mile or two or three just was like winding on up could be strides after it could be like adding hill sprints after it could uh-huh. be you know stuff like what i learned from uh alan webb on his easy days when i was training with him doing accs which were basically like 60 meter excels or on the other day we'd do two by 200 150 120 mm-hmm. just like tsh, a winding up up as we go could be a, a billion different things but it was just like stuff and I think you know. Sometimes I've been guilty of getting away from that um, on the college level, and even on the professional level. But I think it's a nice reminder that like there is a point for this 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 stuff that is harder than easy, but isn't quite hard enough for a quote unquote full blown workout that has all these neuromuscular biomechanical. Um, impacts that might not be easy to quantify in the training log, um, but but bring value and are worth consideration. And I think our model has shifted so much to the the two workouts plus a long run model that like we forget that those in between days, those easy recovery days, don't have to just be go run eight, seven, eight, nine miles and call it a day.
1: Yeah, and I think it's convenience too. It's very easy to track the number of miles you've ran, and then try to make some causation correlation between the miles I ran and how "quote unquote" fit I was. Right when you look back on the training log, uh, because a lot of people use it as a shortcut. Oh, how many miles are running a week? You look fit. Well, or it's very easy to say. Well, my pace for this workout was X, and therefore. These tables or formulaic thinking and charts say I can run a workout at Z, right? That's super easy. But let me tell you something. Math doesn't stop at arithmetic. Calculus, quantum mechanics, physics, these are very complex um, environments with complex uh, equations, right? And ways of thinking about it. Because just because we don't necessarily have the tools yet to appropriately in, straight, in a straightforward ma- fashion measure, Uh, the impact of what these stimuli have on the body globally doesn't mean there's not value. And I, you know, I was talking to Dave Frank, who is the longtime head coach of central Catholic high school, um, uh, cross country interact cross country teams. And they've won multiple state titles uh, in cross country. I mean, he, this is a guy who understands high school cross country through and through and through. Um, And, you know, he was relating to me, yeah, my first, we were talking about, you know, sprinting and all this kind of stuff, and he goes, yeah, uh, my first day on the job, coaching a JV high school program, we went out for a month with the kids, and this guy came back, and at the end of the practice, he just started sprinting all out on the track, and I chewed him out to like, you know, uh, so hard for doing that, I said, we don't do that, we don't race the angle, he goes, but coach, it's fun. And he goes, it's like, and he was, he was like, this guy was a basketball player, too. And he goes, like, don't get basketball is fun. And he goes, that moment clicked for me. And I said, I'm never going to not make, not allow an athlete to do something that they like, that's fun, just because I have a limited concept or knowledge or understanding, or I think that intensity, right, is the scary thing. Running fast is fun. It's fun to feel your body powerfully moving very quickly. It doesn't need to be for long durations, but why um, say, oh, you don't need to do that. That's just downplay that. Even a little bit of dosage daily of running fast can go a long, long, long ways. It's like dunking a basketball. If if you've ever dunked a basketball on a 10-foot rim, if you've ever dunked a basketball on a 5-foot rim, it's fun, <laughs> like it's you feel powerful doing it. So, I think we have to also remember is how you're going to sell that necessar- to, like, say, your athletes. If you're in a type of two day, two day a week workout model with no other big stimulus, is that it's fun. It's fun. It's fun to run fast. That's why we are training and competing. Versus if you only get a return on your aerobic threshold or anaerobic threshold, um, you know, work into your racing environment and that's the narrative you're selling well then you can create people who are just you you know kind of like uh in my opinion just very grumpy because that type of work anaerobic threshold or rogue threshold long steady bouts of like you know at, at those paces without a whole lot of breakup that can make me grumpy because that's a that's hard it's really hard to do and i respect those thresholds it's why they do have a lot of positive consequence to a certain degree to enhance parts of fitness. But if that's all you're harping on and you're saying that's the driver and you're leaving out this whole intensity or speed fun opportunity, you know I, I think it's important to go back and reflect and say well maybe there's something you know that I that I, that I could interject and that could create something of high value and engagement with the people I'm working with.
0: You know, that, that fun component is a, um, is something that I'm, I, I think we miss out. And I think I actually, this ties back to Van Aken's, um, story that we told up at the, uh, at the beginning. Let me find that quote again from his book. Um, Training that takes a playful form constantly mm. regenerates the organism. Whew! That is the million-dollar quote. <laughs> you know, I'm lucky I stumbled upon that. But yeah, that's like a gem. That that there explains something. And I remember last year, you know. Um, in between indoor and outdoor, we took a day and we just played soccer as a team. And I was—I've never done that before. And I was just like, "Ah, oh, let's just have some fun." It was, a, and it was a blast. Rejuvenated, people came back ready, a little sore but ready to ready to go to work. Energy levels came up, all that good stuff. Mm. And and I I think that like no matter how professional you are at this or how serious you take it, is the repetitive nature of of training. Uh, the monotony of it can kind of zap you and put you in this place where maybe you forget to have that playful energy or fun that y- you did at the beginning. And I think that's where allowing some of these workouts or some of these things that you add to the training as spices of work um, allows athletes just to have a little fun with it, you know, where they're not having to grind through another section session or grind through another you know 12 mile run when it's a billion degrees out and all that good stuff and it doesn't have to just be playing soccer it has to be with like having fun and high school coaches um are really good at this right yes phenomenal they they will and i i can think back to my own experience where they set up workouts that were you know relay races and other things like that where it's just like yeah, we were working hard, out hard, but it like brought fun components into it, you know. And you know, I I was not to reminisce too much, but I was talking to some of my upperclassmen this morning, and they were they just went on this reminiscing about different workouts, and they mentioned, and I was uh, as I was paying attention to what workouts they they uh, recalled and were fondly talking about, it was it was some of the really hard ones. But it was also some of the, like, weirdly different kind of creative outside the norm ones, you know, where, to give you two examples, one was where we did this, we just did 200s relay style, right, Mm -hmm. and I would, we just kept going until I pointed at someone, I was like, ah, you're going to sit out this one, and this person's going to go in, right, so you just, you just kind of went on until, and I just judged it based on fatigue, and like they were recalling that one like with a fond memory. And another one we did was we were out at these grass fields, and we went rep by rep. Where I just was like, ah, oh, you know what? Let's do a thousand at at uh, three minutes for this one, okay? They go do the thousand, okay? Like this time, like let's do an eight hundred at this, you know? And I'm telling them one rep at a time what's going, so they don't know what's what's about to come. Ah, oh, shoot.
1: And you know, that's the thing about fartlek, too, is it was supposed to be Swedish speed play, right? So this element of play and fun does have a high impact of value. And, you know, one thing I love that you do, Steve, is the Magnus relays at the end of cross season every year, right? yeah you want to give people a, a quick re- refresher who might not be regular yeah, listeners sure. on what the Magnus relays are
0: so basically it's a uh two man four by eight so person one runs legs one and three person two runs two and four and we uh you know come up with a draft order and have people pick and hype it up and a lot of times record it and um have a silly little trophy and award and something we've been doing for gosh six years now something like that and it's it's a workout that we do um at the end of cross before our uh, regional meet a lot of times sometimes before a conference but it's just a nice way to get like a really good sharpening workout but in a like super fun environment and we've had people do some have some big breakthroughs you know um uh brian one year ran two two of the his two 800s under two minutes i think and that was a a huge step for him believing that he had speed and then w- one year we had one of our girls who was a, a 800 runner who um uh, for two splits i don't remember exactly but they were something like 226 and then 219 or something which off of you know two two and a half minutes rest is pretty dang good and and after that, she transitioned up to the mile and ended up her senior year being third at conference in the 1500. And, you know, sometimes it, it uh, gives people some confidence and in uh, a fun way and allows them to explore their potential and, and race, kind of, in a, in a different environment.
1: And I think that's the thing we have to center the narrative around for intensity or speed stuff, is it's fun and it doesn't have to be crazy high dosage. And I think that's where everyone thinks, you know, people... In general, or at least what has I've I shouldn't say that in what I've seen is a normalization of this idea that workouts or intense stuff is monster workouts, what I call the, the Jerry phenomena, where you see what the Bowerman men and women are doing, and they're these like six, ten mile, eight mile, you know, global volume, intense, long, grinding workouts, and that's the only way to crack the egg and cook, cook the omelet, and it's not. You know, what I'm saying is his method works for his athlete population. There's no doubt about that. But I don't know if we can extrapolate everyone from what he's doing with his athlete population to what you or me or Steve is doing with our athlete population. So we have to say, well, what is a common pattern that a lot of successful coaches um, and athletes throughout this 100-year history – plus that we have of competitive distance running in this modern era have shared. And that is an affinity and a frequency of intensity. Now, the dosage is all over the spot, right? Like we talked about with Lydiard, 10 straight weeks of seven days a week of basically very high intense work after a l- very long base period. Igloy, another example, you know, or Bob Shul. Shul did two interval sessions a day, in preparing for his Olympic gold medal uh, in the 5k in 64. Sebko, Peterko, high intensity um, uh, situation. zatapec high intensity focus situation. Pavel Nermi, high intensity focus situation. Uh, Roger Bannister, vi- uh, quarters, lots and lots of quarters, right, to get ready to break four minutes to the mile, high intensity situation. Jim Ryan's training, high intensity situation. Over and over and over again, we look at the high intensity situation, but it's not an easy narrative to to sell because it when it's when you're doing it out of a compliance versus out of an affinity for it it becomes then drudgery so, and so i think we have to understand like it needs to be fun
0: so i think i i think one of the things that happens um maybe rightfully so because we lived through this era is there was this era of the 90s where it was like low volume high intensity where people are afraid that like when john says this and when john mentions the word intensity that is like oh god he's going back to the 90s <laughs>
1: yeah
0: you know we're back to the 90s because that that's the era that john and i like came out of through high school and college was the spear and really like not tooting my own horn but i remember don sage at york was one of the first guys in high school who was like oh i'm gonna do a lot of volume and add it on top of this intensity and um, then Ryan Hall and those guys and, and and that's the only reason those guys I was like oh I'm going to run a shitload of mileage um, yeah. because like those guys did it and I was like oh this is this must be the new way forward right mm-hmm. and John's not correct me if I'm wrong but you're not saying hey let's go down let's go back to the high school days at 30 miles a week and hammering intervals um, what he's saying is that well, you can tell them what you're well, saying. But... It,
1: it's so like, you know, one of my things I say is run fast more than you run slow. And that doesn't mean pound for pound, step for step that you should run fast. I'm thinking session to session, right? So if you have 10 running sessions scheduled in a week, within those 10 running sessions, I would suggest five to six of them incorporate some type of faster running and faster being defined as faster than marathon pace and so canova's 10 second hill sprints six of them that's a minute's worth of, of running that's running faster more than you run so so don't think about necessarily the mileage mileage yeah think about session to session if i'm playing a, a football game I mean, I'm a football coach. I'm here for a football game. I'm thinking, okay, what are my practices looking like? One day, if, might be no pads and walkthroughs and fresh stuff. One day, might be pads and you know, working on these plays in like game time environment, right? And I think that's what happens when we have very uh, arithmetic or very elementary uh, measures that to um, interpret what we're doing. If we just think through volume then yeah, it sounds crazy. You're saying you should run more of your steps of your volume that's not what I'm saying. But the body responds amazingly to very intense thing in small dosages, right? We know this with various alcohols. If you have a shot of whiskey, one shot of whiskey that's very low volume of liquid is going to get you real drunk compared to one or two beers. A bud of uh, Budweiser, which is more volume of liquid but less intensity of alcohol. Same situation here, and that's how we have to think about this. So, but then too, it shouldn't be forced, right? If an athlete is or a person is exhausted and tired then they're and and running fast does not sound appetizing to them this is where the art of coaching comes in this is where the interpersonal relationship comes in you say hey don't worry about today you're a little bit beat up you're a little fatigued that's oxidative recovery run or that easy you know shakeout jog that's enough you'll be fine you know as long as that's more the exception rather than the rule and you know i think Two, if we also think about how the brain works in peripheral and sensory nervous fatigue, this is where, you know, Steve and I disagree a little bit, is saying, well, when and where should you do fast stuff? I always think from a, you know, and I run a brain dominant or, you know, brain focused model. I use that as my driving model. I have other models in the car, but the brain for me is in the driver's seat. The, you know, the physiological model, the muscle um, recruitment model, all these other models are in my, in my vehicle. But if you're going to put a gun to my head and say, put things and prioritize them, you know, and how you interpret them top to bottom, I'm going to say the brain. So I prefer to have things being that are faster, high coordination, high power output, you know, all those things be first. Because I think we get a lot more out of it. And there's interesting research that's suggesting that we do if you're fresh. And this is what Bowerman talked about a lot, right? Being fresh. And that's why he went to a hard, easy model. Because remember, he was influenced by Lydiard. And he looked at Lydiard and said, whoa, this is too intense for my athlete population to go hard every day in the sharpening period or or in the competition period. So what I'm going to do is go every other. But then he also adjusted it for certain athletes who couldn't sustain that. Like, can he more, right? Kenny Moore famously was hard day two easy day or hard day followed by two easy days. So he understood the art of coaching as well. The models, like I said, they are just a guide, a little light bulb or a little flashlight in the wilderness that is this preparation for the competitive art of running. But they're not the end all be all because when you happen upon in this jungle a better model, pick it up and put it in the car. It's not at the exclusion of others. It's just now you have another lens to look through, and that's where I think. You know, you have to know what models you're applying, and then also keep searching for what models you aren't. Because if you don't, the difficulty comes in then these blanket assumptions that, hey, that you shouldn't be running volume at all. No, there's there's value to the volume, but there's also value to the intensity. And at the end of the day, if you're comp- if you're training to run as fast as you can. Why not frequent the exposure and habituate and normalize the sensation of running fast at whether it's, if you use the Bowerman terminology, goal pace or date pace, right? I mean, there's a lot of people out there who have stumbled upon this with different taxonomy and language, but I think that's the one thing that unites us all. is like, you got to run fast to be fast. You can't be fast by just running slow all the time.
0: So... One thing I want to I wanna comment on that is slightly related to that, but I think is very important for this podcast that we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about it, is it sounds like what John is saying contradicts the work of Steven Seiler, but it doesn't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm going to explain this, and I am a huge fan I think we're both very big fans of of Siler and his work. He does phenomenal. Agreed. Work. Yes. Yeah. Um one of the great thinkers in the research and endurance uh community. But here's and John hinted at this, but I want to I want to take my first stab at it because I know this was a controversial Twitter topic. Um and that's what we're about controversy and Twitter. Um Got to give the people what they want. (laughs) Got to get some entertainment out in the Twitterverse. Trump
1: ain't doing enough. We're we're here to add to the pot.
0: (laughs) At least when John (laughs) does it, the world isn't possibly going to end. Um, Yes. Anyway. It's just running after all. Yeah. So Siler's work is this 80-20 rule for idea – where 80% of your running is you know easy, 20% is pretty intense, and there's this middle zone that is whatever. Well, there's there's a couple ideas that you need to wrap your head around when you're interpreting this. Okay. First, it is done based on either time or distance covered, right? So so consider that, keep that in mind, is that's where these percentages come from. It's 80% of your time spent here versus 20% of uh, your time spent maybe at this high-intensity stuff, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, That's number one. Number two, well, let's let's go into that, and then I'll get to number two. I'm winging this, so bear with me. Um, So when we think about that, well, of course we're going to have a higher level of time spent running slower because we can do more stuff (laughs) running slower, right? It's less taxing. It's less taxing. (laughs) There is only so much time. If I do Canova six by 10 seconds hill sprints, that's a minute worth of work, but that is a very high quality minute. But yeah. if we plot this out in either time or distance, in the grand scheme of my volume, that is going to be very low. So mm-hmm. people sometimes think of, like, oh, look, everything's there's so much volume that is easy. Yes, we need that easy stuff. But this is a no-duh moment of like, yeah, of course the, the high-intensity stuff's gonna be less um, because there's only to so much time you spent. What John was talking about earlier is if you thought about, if you keep that model in your head and say, yes, 80% or roughly needs to be like, relatively easy slower than marathon pace whatever you want to define it like okay that makes sense but if you take it and look at it in terms of training units or even something what i might say like um uh stress units which we can't quantify but like six by ten seconds is a high stress unit because it stresses the neur- neuromuscular system and nervous system mm-hmm. to a high degree so that would be high and maybe the equivalent in terms of st- quote unquote stress units to a 15 mile run right um so think of it in terms of john when he's saying intensity wants these things closer right Mm -hmm. where you need some intensity and then the second point then i'll hand it over um is that oh man i just went blank on my second point no i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna come around to it it's okay you're winging it i'm winging it (laughs) So, the, oh, the second point is this, okay? And I love Siler's work, so it's not a critique, but it's just an observation here. If you look at the three-zone model, okay, where you have easy, we'll say, you have zone two threshold, and you have zone three, VO2 max, high intensity, faster than that. Okay, and then we classify the percent of time or distance you spend in each one. Think, Think about this. Think about, how much pace range is included in those zones. Mm-hmm. And that might tell you a little bit of why the distrib- distribution is like it is. So people say, ah, even marathon runners don't do that much marathon pace stuff. Okay, well, let's, let's come up with a hypothetical uh, range for these one, two, three zones. We'll take a typical college uh, average or solid college male, say, I don't know, mid-14s, 5K type guy okay we'll say his marathon pace uh might be i don't know 530 540 let's say good good conditions Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so anything slower than 540 pace is zone one right his threshold might be maybe from 530 down to i don't know 510 505 somewhere in that range because you know five minute pace is probably over his lactate threshold for lack of a better term um for this kid right um so we'll 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 be generous, say 535 down to five minute pace. Okay? That's 35 mm-hmm. seconds. His fast zone, we'll say, you know, anything faster than this threshold, 10k, whatever, might be, we'll give it a couple errant from 455 down, right? But that down only goes down to a certain it's not unlimited, it goes down to a certain, we'll say like three. You know, if he's doing two hundreds, maybe th- you know, three minute mile pace or low three minute mile pace, whatever that mm-hmm. equates to, to all out sprinting, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there you have this this narrow so zone one. Let's consider it five forty up. That includes five forty, six forty, seven forty, eight forty. That's a very wide range of quote unquote intensities humongous <laughs> everything from my minutes multi minutes yeah, minutes, what minutes what i will call my slog middle distance runner cool down that like grandma could walk faster than to you know something that's like a steady easy or solid solid you know normal distance run so there's a wide variation a wide range in there and our threshold zone we're looking at you know 30 45 seconds which is a very very narrow band and then our our speed side it's more than our threshold but it's still mm-hmm. less than our endurance you know zone 1 stuff so when you sit there and you think like oh well maybe this bandwidth of how we're classifying things plays a role into into you know where these numbers end up and that might bias us bias us into thinking that oh we have to spend a ton of time in zone 1 even though zone 1 could encompass anything from slogging to a pretty quality you know distance run mm-hmm. so just just two things that i think are 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 Top of the mind are important to talk about when you might contrast John when he's talking about intensity to this more well known Steven Seiler work. All right, I'll step (laughs) off my box.
1: It's a good box. I mean it's provocative and that's the thing is we have to keep thinking and keep evolving our, our train of thought. You know, one thing I'll add is basically throughout time or throughout the study I have done. There have been a multiplicity of coaches, not every coach, but a multiplicity of coaches who try to find some causation and correlation between hard numbers, times ran in practice, volume accumulated in practice, and then what that athlete does on race day on the track. And you hear this a lot. Hey, what's your athlete ready to run? As if there's predictive value in the workloads or workouts that someone has done and what that indicates they're capable of doing. I've been guilty of this before in the younger uh, incarnations of my coaching career. I've still been guilty of this. You know, I've there's coaches who are like, oh, they're ready to go. They're ready to run four flat for fifteen hundred as a female, or what have you, or you know, four or three three thirty five for fifteen hundred as a male. And you go, oh, why? Oh, well, this workout tells me that. Oh, well, how do you know? Uh, and it's like because all these tables and these charts and these physiological theorems and everything. It's not linear. If it was linear, causation and correlation, it'd be easy. It'd be super easy. We, we could dial it in like none other. And yet, we are inherently insecure creatures as human beings, whether you're an athlete or a coach, that does not matter. And the numbers give us an illusion of control. And so we invest in an ornament amount of time and energy in trying to control these numbers. Hey, I need you to run 75 miles a week. Not, not 78 75 because if you go over 75 you're gonna you're gonna be fried you know not really i don't think so what matters is in order and i think when you look out into other training cultures and other sports is intensity followed by density and then finally volume or capacity right so density could also be frequency but intensity is always the driver always and the idea is you want to as literate demonstrated you want to prepare to run as intense as often as you can in a sustainable you know adaptive progressive way that helps to build the organism or the athlete and makes them faster maybe that's six days in a row with a long study or long stay two hour run on sunday maybe it's every other day maybe it's once every two days maybe it's once every three days depends on your athlete population depends on your philosophy as a coach depends on what you're getting ready for it does depend depends on your level of education as a coach the models you're electing to use the models you don't know you're not using the models you discard and you're not using the mentors you had your your influences as an athlete if you're an athlete all these things factor in right and then we also have to say well if we have all this depends on it we have to understand it's frequency you know or density is another key driver daily doubles work for high school Because why? It gets kids in shape quick. Why? Because you're now spending, because you're doing two exposures a day, it makes, by consequence, your volume go up, right? If I'm practicing soccer in two 90-minute spouts a day, that's longer globally than if I have one practice, that's two hours, right? And we say, "Oh, oh, there's something there. Well, maybe not. Maybe it's just the density of having two dosages. And then getting a break, a long break, like four or five hours in between, like most runners who run doubles take traditionally four to five hours in between minimum. They get a break to get a little mini recharge or a little mini regeneration so that they get higher quality out of the second double. Now, if you doubled and you didn't eat anything, drink anything, and you're heavily stimulated between the two, you you're probably your second run wouldn't feel that awesome. Because you're a little bit now more drained. And that's the idea, is to create more frequency of practice. So if I'm going to have more intense practice, intense being a relative word, and frequency being a relative as well, then all of a sudden volume starts to explode. And I think sometimes we sit here and we manipulate volume as the driver, when actually I think it's in the back seat a lot of times. And as a product of intelligent progressions with intensity and density because if i'm the way i sit down and write a training program or a plan is i try to work in about three week blocks with each athlete i sit down i look at the intensities the intense sessions what intensities do we need to subject them to to ready their body or ready their mind and the organism that's them for their next competitive bout right or race and then i look back at the frequency of those intensities how frequent can we subject them to these variety of intensities that will, will, that my best educated guess on knowing this athlete will help them build up and not break down and then i look back and i look at the volume of what i wrote and go okay is this globally too much or too little time for their for their um uh uh, practice age, right, or for their competitive age, or their um, uh, sporting age, right, and it might it might be it might be too little, might be too much, might be just right, or I might turn the keys over on them on the easy days and say, hey, do what you feel will make you feel fresh or refreshed for the next session. That could be a thirty-minute walk, could be a ten-mile run, you know, in nature, in you know, on your favorite trail. Could be, you know. Uh, a, a little a light fart lick, you know some easy 200s at the end of a run it, i mean it, it, with the adults i'm working with who know their bodies a little bit better i'm able to do that so we don't necessarily need to manipulate and control every single thing and say i have this amazing you know periodization progression of a training plan that starts them off at 10 miles a week and then 15 and then 20 and then maybe it's undulating block and then it goes back down to uh 15 and then back up to 20 25 volume not is not necessary to me in the driver's seat it's in the car it's definitely a passenger it definitely matters but if we let go of our need to track and esteem volume I wonder if we're gonna have more results from those coaches who allowed themselves to not worry about those things like Piercy Serity. He didn't care. You know, and because of that, he understood what mattered was working. Bill Bowerman, right? The magic is in the man, not in the hundred miles. He didn't care. He understood, yeah, you gotta work with high frequency and high intensity consistently, and because of that, your volume would be whatever. But you didn't have to hit 100 miles a week because there's direct correlation between that and competency in, in the racing environment. And so that's what I'm saying is there's a lot of different ways to go about it. But we have to always ask ourselves, you know, but what if we're wrong? What if our assumption that there is this really, really intense correlation isn't necessarily the correlation we think? You know, it might, there might be some cor- um, cor- correlation there but it might not be as direct or as linear or as strong as we thought thought it once was
0: 100%. I think that like our you know as we wrap this up our idea is not to take you back to the 90s. That is not what John <laughs> No. Wants <to> do.
1: But, <laughs> hey, because if we look, if we're going back to the 90s, we being low fat food, yeah. right? Drinking diet Pepsis and pretending like we're being healthy. <laughs> because <laughs> that was the 90s guys god loves the 90s and um, i like milk whole milk is good yummy and butter is good so thank goodness for being in almost 2020
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't don't worry in 20 years when we're still doing this podcast we're going to be hating on something that we're doing um uh, because that's how should hope that's that's how the cycle goes. That's how evolution works. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I guess to sum up, it's it, you know, it's just to get you get you guys to think about all this stuff. You know, this is the point of this podcast is to be a little provocative, but it's mostly to get coaches to think about things outside their realm, you know? And you That's know, also what we're thinking about too. Yeah. I'm, and you I know? I I was talking to a, a good soccer performance coach. And he said this, and I was like, Yeah, that's just how we deal too. It was like, man, like for a while in soccer, like high level, we're talking professional level performance, like we. We had like this old school model where it was like, oh, go do your, go do your long, slow runs and like get really aerobically fit. And then it switched to this like hit high intensity interval training model. Mm -hmm. And it's like, now we're all just, and it goes back and forth and keeps slipping. And he's like, man, now I'm just trying to find this middle ground where we're like, you know, we use some of this, some of that, some of this. And, um... And I think, you know, that's what you see in our training, too, is we flip these models around and whatever. But I I think it's it's worth considering going back to the original sources on what we might think of, like, oh, this is a high-volume aerobic stuff. Well, yeah, kind of, but it also has this. Oh, this Mm -hmm. is a uh, high-speed, high-intensity approach. Well, yeah, kind of, but it also had this, you know? And what we often miss, because we are uh creatures of these like two extremes and extremism and not looking at the new nu- and nuances we 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 miss the fact that but it kind of had this you know
1: Extreme, yeah and extremism is simple like we we are at the end of the day we like simple like I like simple simples you know you can understand it quickly shortcuts are good right hacks like these are all things that prey on our basic desires—just to be able to feel intelligent, feel competent, feel good. It's, it's simple. The big dopamine hit was
0: simple. Yeah, simple, simple, and anyway.
1: yeah, and and unfortunately, like I said, like you know, everyone's like, oh, don't complexify it. It's like, no, no, no. Sometimes it's complex. Like, you know, uh Sabin, right? He talks about no, sometimes it's complex. Like Dan Path, it's complex. The body is a complex adaptive system. It's not simple. Training is not simple. I wish it were. The running mechanic in motion is not simple. It is very, very complex. And it's okay that it's complex, because think about it, it's had tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years to evolve. Right? That evolution has made it complex, but I, complex is not bad. I would, you know, say insert the word sophisticated into complex. I'm happy there's a stumble reflex, you know, hardwired into our brains that's involuntary. Because I do not want to fall down, you know, if I can help it, on the cement and drop my coffee and hit my face. And I'm happy that the stumble reflex is there. So thank you, evolution. That's a complex reflex. And it says, there's no way to train it. It just is. And guess what? All human beings, for the most part, unless you have a degenerative disease, have a, are privy to it. So there's all these things we don't know, which is very interesting and exciting. But at the end of the day, like coaching is coaching, right? And we, we sit here and we talk about all these theories and training principles. But you're in a people person jobs or you're in a, a job with people. That's the role. Keep it fun, keep them coming back, keep them healthy, keep them going, keep give them a sense of belonging. All these things are going to just be just as potent as powerful as what you do or don't do in training. Because again, you can have the best training plan in the world and the most sophisticated and the most complex and the most scientifically backed and the most heavily researched and the most, you know, integrated with all the other coaching greats methodologies, but if you don't have anyone to coach, so
0: what 100% 100% is a people person so we'll we'll leave it at that for you guys to chew on and mull over until next time um as we said uh thanks to and remember um our sponsor at the beginning the Missouri Distance Clinic 100 bucks go to the link in the show notes it will be 100% worth it um organized by a good friend but it's it's spot on. So go see Vince Anderson, Vern Gambetta, Harry Mara, and Jim Radcliffe. And if if you're there and you listen to the pod, you get to meet us in person, and we'll figure out something cool to do. Or
1: oh, for sure, we'll do something real cool. Maybe know, like live Q and A pod or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you want to be on the pod, man, head out there because we got it, if we got time, which I'm sure we'll find some. We'll we'll do a live Q and A pod and. You can be a part of it. So until next time, thanks for listening. We're out.